going to speak for about 20 minutes around the issue of uh, new migration and community change and the idea that new migration has local impacts and consequences that we need to understand and seek to manage um, to maximise the positives and minimise the benefits, minimise the negatives. And I want to draw on three pieces of research that myself and colleagues have undertaken over recent years. The, the first is um, Arts and Humanities Research Council project which we undertook last year which was a review of the evidence base around local experiences and impacts of migration. The second is a piece of work undertaken about three years ago by myself and colleagues looking at the housing pathways of new immigrants and the way in which experiences of immigrants themselves were varying between places with a particular focus on housing. That field work was conducted in Sheffield. Then the final uh, piece of uh, research I'm going to draw on was a piece of work undertaken with colleagues at Universities of Oxford and Leeds looking at um, experiences and relations between new and settled communities in Bradford with a focus on uh, neighbourhood and house housing concerns. And one of the elements of that was some interactive forums where we brought together um, new and settled groups um, to talk about neighbourhood challenges and futures and aspirations for the areas where they were living. Um, and that included different demographic groups, young mothers, um, young people, and uh, uh, older people as well. At risk of running over the, the, the 20 minutes, as I often am, because I'm prone to drift off in all sorts of directions, I thought I'd start with my conclusions. So you can all walk out after this slide if you choose to. There's, there's four key points I think that I'm going to, I'm going to emphasise that can be drawn out of the available evidence base around community change and local experiences and impacts of, of, of migration. The first is around the limits of the evidence base, and it's the classic researcher call for more research to keep us in work, of course. Actually, when we start looking at the evidence of impacts broadly around migration, there's an awful lot of ambiguity and confusion and contradiction um, within the evidence base. In particular, in relation to local impacts, there's actually very limited evidence um, about what is happening in different places, the different kinds of processes and outcomes that are happening in different places. Having said that, I think we can pull from that some kind of glimpses into the way that uh, migration plays out in terms of community relations and other kinds of consequences in different ways. And here I emphasise the importance of place, that we have to understand the nature of places to understand the nature of the processes and outcomes associated with migration for both migrants themselves and also for the, the settled population and the places where they live. Then going to reflect a little bit about how we start to try and explain these local experiences, and that's important for understanding what the policy response might look like. And then I just want to finish off focusing particularly on the issue of community relations to reflect a little bit on um, a review I did of available evidence around interventions seeking to mediate local challenges and what we can pull from that evidence base. And again, what I'm going to emphasise uh, there is actually little is known. There's not much evidence about what works in managing these challenges. Okay, so to start a little with, with the, the issue around limits of the evidence base, I won't dwell on, on this too much, it's just, it's just uh, emphasising the point that the presumed impacts of migration have very much been in, at the fore in recent popular political and media discussion and debate. These are some figures from the Ipsos Mori sort of state of the nation um, questionnaire they do regularly, asking people about what issues concern them most about life in the UK at the moment. And it's just emphasising the point that, that the issue of migration jumped from less than 5% in the mid-1990s to 44% in 2006 as the most important issue 
affecting the nation. It's still up at 24% this year, despite the kind of economic turmoil which we're facing, which obviously has, has grown in people's minds as a key issue. Everybody in the room will be familiar with the, the, the extent to which sort of familiar, well-worn debates have been trotted out around the impacts and consequences of migration. What I'm interested in and, and talking about today and have been doing in the work in the last few years is, well, what's the evidence base about how things are playing out? And I think if we look at the evidence base, we, we actually get quite an ambiguous and contradictory position. Uh, and I've picked out sort of five areas here where there's a lot of discussion and debate, often quite highly charged debate, around the consequences of migration. And you can find evidence that, of particular challenges, but also <coughs> evidence that seems contrary and seems to suggest sort of positives and, and, and benefits in relation to national GDP, wages, poverty, and the utilisation of public services, the issues of tensions and conflict can exist but are inevitable, um, and in terms of the impact on service providers. Um, challenges can arise in terms of resource planning, but there's many agencies which have adapted with relative ease to the process of change that's occurred because of migration. So there seems to be variation in the experiences. I'm, I'm skimming across quite a large evidence base here and making these points. What I want to sort of argue and, and, and what I think my, my lo more local work suggested is that a lot of this ambiguity in the evidence base reflects the fact that the outcomes vary from place to place and reflects both the nature of the and composition of the receiving and arriving population and the nature of the places into which they are arriving. And that both is between cities, say, within the UK, but also within cities, between different kinds of neighbourhoods and reflecting their profile. So we have a variable geography of experiences, impacts and consequences. What about the glimpses that we can gain into this variable geography and the extent to which um, processes are playing out in different ways in, in different places? Well, I think the first thing to say is that most of the evidence, as far as I can make out, around impacts and consequences of migration is at the national level. So, for example, the work around economic consequences focuses on national GDP. Labour market issues, often there is talk at the regional level, but rarely does that kind of discussion get down to the local level and distinguish it between the way that processes are playing out in different ways in different places. A lot of this discussion also is, is placeless. It doesn't really engage with any kind of geography. Or it's sector-based. So, for example, there might be discussion about the impact on the health service or the education service, but again, it doesn't sensitise that analysis to talk about differences between different locations and the impacts within those sectors in different locations. Having said that, I think there's two areas where we gain some glimpses into local experiences from, from the evidence base, as far as, as far as we can make out. The first of those is around the whole issue to do with migration, poverty and deprivation. Um, the first, I think, which, which comes very much from the, the quite extensive literature exploring the experiences of migrants themselves, and I'm using the word migrant to sort of capture quite a wide group of people, of course, whose different legal statuses, rights and opportunities mean that they do have different experiences by virtue of those. So I'm not denying that, that kind of agency element. Um, but uh, new migrants often, because, principally, I think, because of, because of the kind of housing opportunities and the, the position within the housing system, often end up living in deprived neighbourhoods, which are characterised by poor housing, often characterised by high unemployment, and perhaps restricted social provision, local amenities. And those are situations which are well established as having a long-term impact on life, life uh, experiences and opportunities. So that's a, the, an example of place impacting on the migrant experience. At the same time, there's evidence that the potential for migration to impact on place, so it's the flip side of the coin, if you like. 
Um, there's not a lot of evidence around this, and I was, I was talking to Ben before, and I think there's a, there's a reluctance amongst the academic community, if you like, to, to, to engage with the notion of impacts, and I've certainly been challenged by some academics when I use the word impacts, because saying that's overtly negative. So you talk about consequences and challenges, but there is a process of change in places where new migrants arrive. That process of change in churn can present challenges which perhaps need to be managed. Um, but I, I don't think there's a lot of academic uh, discussion and debate which is engaged uh, with these. But what is available in terms of the evidence base suggests that there is potential for the arrival of new migrants to reinforce the geographies of, 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 of deprivation and exclusion. So a prime example would be very high levels of unemployment amongst refugees for a whole host of reasons which I'm sure everybody in the room is familiar with, well, that high level of unemployment associated with the particular uh, housing opportunities and channelling of those, those refugees into particular locations can serve to reinforce existing geographies of deprivation and exclusion. And that results in potentially an sort of intensification of that, that kind of process of social exclusion in those locations. Also, strains on services can occur, and the, the, the service area that often is talked about are schools and the challenges that can arise from schools, often having new migrant children arrive during the middle of a school year, therefore the resources might not have been secure to support that, the challenges that might be posed in terms of dealing with an increasingly sort of diverse pupil base, and also some sort of notions, either and perceptions, whether or not correct, amongst parents that their children might be suffering as a, virtue, as a consequence of this increasing diversity which can raise tensions which have to be managed and not necessarily all schools have those skill sets to manage those kinds of challenges. So Mary Hickman um, and colleagues in her sort of major study which was published by the JRF a few years ago um, suggest that it's perhaps not surprising given these kinds of processes and pressures that settled residents commonly perceive immigrants as unwanted outsiders adding to the burden of deprivation and contributing nothing. Perhaps not surprising, but what, what, what Mary and colleagues go on to talk about and what other um, um, examples from the evidence base can be pulled out is there are also lots of positives that can flow from the arrival of new migrants in terms of local impacts and, and effects. And I've just listed a few here which, which largely relate to sort of my areas of expertise around uh, housing, and, housing and, and policy. So particularly, I think, in the North and the Midlands, there's examples where migrants in some location have filled voids in local housing, in areas of low demand um, and, and, and abandonment. Um, they've helped tackle the blight of empty properties, provided a settled population in an area characterised by turnover and churn. So there's actually more stability in some of these locations as a consequence of the arrival of, of migrants. And this certainly chimes with some of our work in Sheffield, where we talked to Liberian refugees who came in through the Gateway programme. And we're talking, and very much wanted to hunker down and secure a, a place of home after often 10 or 15 years of, of churning in their life, moving from refugee camp to refugee camp on uncertainty. They wanted to hunker down and form a home, often in neighbourhoods which were historically over the last sort of five or ten years, this is uh, Sheffield I'm talking about, there have been an awful lot of churn because of the unpopularity of these particular uh, social housing estates on the edge of the city. Um, Thorpe um, talks about the, the raised educational skill levels that can be evidenced in the local population as, as a result of the arrival of migrants and their families. Um, and the underpinning and viability of local services. This is the flip side of the point I made about problems faced by schools. Is that There are examples, and Mary Hickman talks about this, about schools where the roles were dropping to the point that the school, it was questionable whether that school was viable and the neighbourhood consequently was going to suffer 
the consequences of the school closing, where the school role has been boosted and it's been, it's been turned around and it's become a, a viable, uh, um, viable resource because of the arrival of, of, of new migrants and, and their children. The second area um, where there's, there's some kind of insights into um, local impacts and, uh, and challenges won't surprise any of you is around cohesion. And evidence points to the fact that cohesion can be challenged, particularly in deprived communities where there's little experience of accommodating <coughs> diversity and difference. So where migration is a disruption of kind of everyday life and, and particularly notions of identity which might be quite inward looking and bounded and place specific, those can be challenged um, by the arrival of, 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 of new migrants. These are areas that might be less able to capitalise on the possibilities of, of new migration, um, particularly when unsupported. And I'll come back onto this point about the potential for interventions to mediate some of these challenges and assist places um, with, with, with the kind of challenges and, uh, that might be faced. Second sort of key point that comes out of this evidence base is that particular kinds of neighbourhoods seem better able to cope and manage in a positive way with the challenges that might be posed by the kind of arrival of new migrants and the, and the population churn associated with that. And in particular, the evidence base talks about established areas of minority ethnic settlement um, being better able to cope with and offer new arrivals a, a, a better kind of settlement experience and assist with the acculturation process. Um, Obviously, there's caveats around this. I mean, the, the work we, I was talking to Ben about before we started in Bradford was looking, say, at the established Pakistani population and its relations with the recently arrived Eastern European population. And so these kind of assumptions can be overly simplistic sometimes around the fact that just because it's got diversity, more diversity isn't a problem. It can be, particularly if it's challenging sort of well-established and hard-won hard kind of rights and, and notions of belonging um, within the, the established minority ethnic population. Then the final point that comes through strongly from the evidence base around cohesion challenges is around competition over scarce resources being incredibly divisive. And we all know, particularly the issue of social housing has proved uh, key um, in, in this kind of um, debates. Um, and often it's, 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 the, it's the perception as much as the reality, and I think social housing is a prime example of that. I think people probably heard me talk about this before. But uh, when the whole issue blew up around social housing as a result of Margaret Hodges' comments, what was lacking from all of the debate was any evidence at all. And when one went and looked at the number of A8 migrants in social housing, which was the focus of Margaret Hodges' comments, the numbers were absolutely tiny. I went and looked at the, uh, the data held by then the Housing Corporation around um, Barking Dagenham, which is what she was talking about, and I could only find evidence of three A8 migrants moving into housing association stock in the previous year. But the perception was there. Um, around this kind of scarce resource and people exploiting the generosity of the, the British welfare state. Okay, um, I'm just going to draw a little bit to, to illustrate some of these points on some work we did in Sheffield and, and, and illustrate these. And I want, to, I want to deal with two kind of extreme examples of different kinds of places and the way in which the arrival of, of, of new migrants might play out differently in these different places to illustrate some of these important aspects of place um, and how they inform the experience. What I'm referring to here is this, this notion of the established contact zone of migration. So this is a location which has a history of accommodating diversity and difference, of recognising different identities and notions of belonging and being at ease with those, being quite outward looking, um, and having a history of different cultures coming together, colliding, often in a kind of, you know, uh, uh, in, in contest, but eventually um, coming with some kind of negotiated social settlement. 
these kinds of places typically uh, represent more kind of safe and secure places for new immigrants, particularly when new arrivals share some kind of national, ethnic, cultural kind of identity with the receiving population. There's also evidence of accumulated benefits of collective action. An example here would be from our work, um, Somali refugees arriving into Sheffield, which has had a Somali population since the 1950s, which has managed to accrue a series of kind of collective resources which the new arrivals could benefit from, be those shops, be those community, uh, community associations, or just be it the fact that the presence of a Somali person on the streets in those neighbourhoods is not something that stands out and therefore becomes a, a target for, for persecution in some, some form. So these areas are kind of more cosmopolitan in nature. And what's, it's difficult to, to see this, I mean, I may, I'll maybe stand up and point it out. What, what I want to draw is the yellow dots, which you can't really see very well, the Liberians who came through the gateway in the province of Sheffield. The blue dots are Pakistani people, who majority of whom were either on work visas or on spouse visas. The green dots are Somali people who came through as asylum seekers. And the red dots are Polish migrant workers. Now, this is a qualitative study. The numbers were small. But what struck us when we actually plotted where these people were living was that there was a very particular geography to their settlement patterns. So in terms of the established contact zones of new migration in the city of Sheffield, what we find is that the Pakistani people, the blue, uh, the blue dots, and the Polish people, the red dots, were living in this particular area, predominantly, of the city, which is an established sort of reception locality within Sheffield. It's kind of referred to as the Avondale Corridor. It's one of the most diverse areas of the city, which has a long history of accommodating new arrivals into the city. So those people were living there, and they had a distinct and different experience to the Liberian and the Somali people who were living in, as you can see here, this is a cluster of Liberian Somali, and this is a cluster of Liberian Somali. These are peripheral social housing estates where those people were accommodated, because in Sheffield at the time they arrived, there was spare um, social housing stock because of relative low demand at that point. So I just want to highlight the different experiences that the Polish and Pakistani people had to the Liberian Somali and how that was reflective in part of the fact that they arrived into a very different kind of neighbourhood context. So the Polish and Pakistani were living in these cosmopolitan landscapes around the city centre which had a long history of accommodating diversity and difference. Pakistani people talked about the invaluable advice and assistance that received from family and friends, but also from community-led services that were long established in the neighbourhoods where they'd settled. The Polish migrant workers didn't emphasise the importance of living next to or near to other Polish people, but actually in the consequence of the housing opportunities and what was available in the private rented sector and houses of multiple occupation meant that they had been pulled into the locations where there were other Polish migrants and talked about the benefits of being close to other people for finding work, accommodation, shopping facilities and such like. And one of the things that really struck us in this study was that the new migrants in these locations talked positively about their white British neighbours, about having good relations with them um, and about limited sort of experience of harassment and persecution. And this was in sharp contrast to the experience of the Liberian and Somalis, as I'll quickly um, illustrate. So the Liberian and Somali refugees who were tended to be living in the peripheral estates because when they arrived in the city and were granted refugee status they were allocated social housing and, and the empty social housing was in these peripheral estates were moving into areas of traditional white working class settlement which had little or no history of coping with managing, accommodating diversity and difference of any kind. Very place-bounded notions of belonging and identity and very inward-looking uh, neighbourhoods. As well as the physical isolation, and particularly amongst the Somali people who, when in, in 
what was their NASA accommodation had been li living in these cosmopolitan spaces, once they got granted leave to remain in the UK, were given housing, which involved them moving out of those cosmopolitan spaces into these peripheral estates, talked about having nobody nearby, and quite a few of the Somali people we talked to would every day get up, get on a bus, and go to those cosmopolitan spaces, spend their day there, before returning back to the council house on the, in these peripheral estates. So a sense of isolation and a lot of talk about the corrosive effect of harassment and abuse. And a, a number of the people we talked to had actually left the council housing stock because of those problems and had, had moved into either with friends, so therefore were effectively homeless, or moved into the private rental sector to kind of escape these neighbourhoods. So there's an alienating effect of living in these particular neighbourhoods. Okay, just a little bit about trying to explain these different local experiences, the way in which outcomes are varying between places. I think what we, we see in the evidence base is a kind of, a, 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 and we, we, we see in the kinds of points I've been making really, is a mix of attention to the potential for diversity to be a positive, which taps into notions around contact theory. So by coming into contact with diversity and difference, more positive kind of understanding and relations are nurtured um, between settled population and the new migrant population. <coughs> now there are various caveats associated with that in that actually in, uh, interaction can actually breed problems if it's not mediated and managed in, in, a, in a relevant and appropriate manner. So there's an unpredictability associated with that contact. But there is that emerging insight from the evidence base that, that, that diversity and increased contact can be a positive. But at the same time, there's, 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 there's evidence coming through that supports the conflict theory, that actually diversity can be problematic, particularly in areas of deprivation. And there's the, the sense that there's a material underpinnings to tensions that, that take a, a racialized form. Now, I think the challenge in understanding how these issues are playing out at the local level is that we have to overlap these two notions. We have to overlap the assertions of, of, of conflict theory with the assertions of contact theory. And thus far, I guess my argument is that the evidence base isn't very good at this and isn't very good at understanding how these different processes are playing out in terms of relationships between new, and, uh, new arrivals and, and settled populations. So we've got hints at different aspects of place that seem to be informing differential experiences of new migration. The composition of the population, the material context, local resources and facilities, the institutional infrastructure, local political culture and actions, and the identities and belongings. So different notions of place, composition, context, and collective notions of place. But we're not sure how these interplay and interact to inform outcomes that, that, that seem to vary in different places. Now, various attempts have been made to, to conceptualise these processes and these interactions, interrelationships between different dimensions of place to understand um, these outcomes. This is one that, that myself and colleagues developed um, from our Sheffield study. And it's a continuum. And at one e extreme, there's this notion of parochial places. So these might be the peripheral um, social housing estates I've talked about in the context of Sheffield. It might also be small towns or rural areas in, 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 of England which have little history of accommodating diversity and difference and managing these, these, these kind of processes of change. Very inward looking and bounded identities and these perceived threats and stranger danger being, being to the fore. Um, also an insensitivity of local service provision to diversity and difference and the skill sets associated with working with um, a diverse population. So that's, that's at one end. And at the other end might be the cosmopolitan places. 
So these are areas with a history of accommodating diversity and difference, which are more at ease with that diversity and difference, and might maybe have more relevant service provision already in place, which is capable of working with the changing population. A similar kind of continuum was, has been developed by Glickschiller and Kaglow in 2009, but this is focusing on cities. They're talking about cities here, but they come up with a very similar kind of continuation, uh, continuum around parochial places at one side and cosmopolitan places at the other extreme. But they're talking about cities here. So the, the parochial places, and I always perceive sort of some of the, the, the former industrial towns of the north to fall into this category. Hull might be a good example. I mean, we've done quite a bit of work in Hull looking at the experience of refugees. And it seems to me Hull falls into this kind of category. Former industrial um, city, which provides a reduced range of possibilities for new migrants because of the process of decline uh, in the city that's already ingrained and, and, and deep-rooted. And context in which migrants and their skill sets are not highly valued and high levels of deprivation, which sort of reinforce those problems and, and taps into that notion of conflict theory. At the other extreme, Glickshiller talks about cosmopolitan places, places like London, places like the, some of the towns in, in the M4 corridor. Post-industrial offer a whole range of opportunities for new migrants, and their skill sets and their contribution is potentially more valued. Also, perhaps, a history of, di of great diversity and greater wealth and well-being, which is critical in terms of understanding the degree to which the places can can accommodate and positively the process of change. Now, I think these are useful organising devices for understanding the way in which these outcomes might follow through in different ways in different places, but they don't go any further than that. They don't actually allow us to understand how processes of change are going to play out in different places. And I think one of the ways to, to think about this, and you know, this, is, this is a conceptual model that I developed myself, so I'm critiquing my own work is, is that if I say, okay, well, what about some uh, place that's located, a neighbourhood that's located in the middle of the continuum? How do these different dynamics and processes play out there? Well, this, is, this descriptive model doesn't help us understand that. It doesn't help us understand that process of change, describe or predict that process of change, and suggest what sort of mediating interventions are required. So it doesn't go beyond uh, description to actually un understand the, the, the processes of change and analyse those. So we've got no ability at the moment, I don't think, to go beyond this description to understand um, the, the, the drivers, of, drivers of change and what responses are needed. I just want to emphasise that particular point with my final couple of slides, which is looking at the issue of community relations and what kind of interventions are required to manage the community challenges that can arise from um, the process of change associated with new migration. As part of a, um, the, the study, the, the third study that I listed at the very beginning, I undertook a review of the evidence base around local interventions designed to manage the process of change at the local level and to minimise community conflict in areas affected by migration. A lot of this evidence base um, is rooted in the community cohesion agenda and was, was, a lot of the initiatives were actually acted and delivered under that um, umbrella term and agenda. But what, what we tended to find when we, we traced, and there's lots of examples of supposed good practice, lots and lots of projects are listed as examples of good practice in managing the process of change, and particularly focusing on the issue of community relations. But what we found when we traced these examples of good practice back through various reports in which they've been, been, been referenced and quoted, was we never got back to an evidence base, to an evaluation evidence base, which involved the rigorous analysis of what worked about these projects and why, and how they might be reproduced, in which particular circumstances they might work. 
What we got back to usually, and in many of these, was um, a document which had been produced and said, this is a really interesting initiative. This has uh, been really productive in this particular example, and said little or no more than that. But subsequently, it had been referenced by numerous reports and it had become kind of like established as an example of good practice. A lot of these can be traced back to um, one of the appended reports of the Commission for Integration and Cohesion, um, which has a whole sort of list of, of projects and vignettes of about a page of projects, but none of them being subject to, to rigorous evaluation. So actually what we're left with is not much understanding out there about what works in terms of managing the, the kind of community challenges and, and, and promoting positive relations around new migration. So just to, to sum up the, and, and to sort of reiterate the key points I've made, it's a, kind of, it's a presentation, I guess, which involves me raising lots of questions and saying, well, we don't really know very much about this. Um, but unfortunately, that's a reflection of the nature of the evidence base. Analysis has largely ignored the impacts of new migration, um, and what is available is usually at the national level or at the regional level, or is placeless, and, it's, and doesn't attend to the way in which these outcomes might be different in different places and doesn't try to understand why outcomes and challenges are different in different places. There are some hints of what the drivers of community change and associated challenges might be, but there's little known about the relationship between places, experiences and impacts which allow us to understand how policy might need to intervene to manage these challenges. So the actual process and interplay of different factors is not understood. Local interventions have not been subject to any evaluation, so we don't really know what works where and why. So it's very difficult from the available evidence base to give policy any advice about how it might approach managing this process of change.